Uh, as you are able to stand, please stand for the reading of the word, which will be done by Jana. If I can get my paper clip. Acts 19, 11 through 20. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Seva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, if you're joining us for the first time, we are in the middle of a series in the book of Acts, which is an account of the early Christian church. After Jesus was crucified, buried, he rose from the grave and he spent 40 days with his disciples. And just before ascending back to heaven, he told his disciples that we have captured in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 that we've been uh, going through every single week that we've been, been in this series. It says this, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So for the past 2,000 years, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the gospel has gone out through all this world of, praying, of sharing the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the hope that we have in and through him. And since chapter 13 in the book of Acts, we've been following this man named Paul, the Apostle Paul, who uh, had a radical story of forgiveness and conversion in Acts chapter 9. He's now traveling, Paul is traveling the Mediterranean area of going city to city to city of preaching and teaching about Jesus. And when he would go into a city, he would go straight to the Jewish synagogue. Why? Because Paul used to be a Jew, and in the early beginnings of Jesus' ministry, when Jesus was preaching and proclaiming him as him being God in the flesh, a lot of the Jews missed it. They missed him as the Messiah. They had been waiting for thousands of years for this Messiah, for God in the flesh to come, and Jews missed Jesus. And so Paul is traveling throughout the Mediterranean area, wanting Jews, the religious people, to realize, hey, within our own scriptures where it talks about this coming king, this Messiah, his, man, his name is Jesus. 
And so he would do this in the Jewish synagogues and it would get to the point where there'd be one of two things that would happen. Either Jews would repent and be baptized or the other people, the other Jews would chase him out of the synagogues and be like, hey, enough with you, you blasphemer, get out of our, our synagogue. Well, after that took place, Paul, whatever city he was in, he would then go and preach to the Gentiles. The Gentiles were anybody that wasn't Jew. So friends, all of us sitting in here today, when we hear the word Gentile in scriptures, that's you and me, assuming that there's probably not any Jews in here. We are Gentiles, and so Paul would then go and preach and teach the gospel message to the Gentiles. And how would he do that? He would primarily go into a city and identify the idols of that city. What are the things or the people that people in this city that are wrapping their arms around, clinging tightly to, thinking in their mind, this is what's gonna save me. <clears throat> this is what is going to give me salvation and hope and meaning for life. Paul would identify those things and then he would lean in and press in and tell them, hey, these idols that you're worshiping, you're praising, they have absolutely no value. And by the way, anything that man can make by their hand, how could that be a God? And so Paul was teaching and preaching this message and it would lead to one or two things. People would either repent or there would be rejection. Rejection to the point where Paul would be chased out of town. And that's where we find ourselves today in chapter 19 as Paul comes into the city of Ephesus it gets to the point where the town, there's a riot that forms and shapes within Ephesus because they're sick and tired of his message. They're sick and tired of his gospel proclamation because it's causing problems within their own lives of Paul pressing in and telling them your idols that you follow are false. And so it gets to the point where ruckus and a riot and resistance forms. We should expect that. We should expect everywhere that the gospel is shared and proclaimed, we should expect resistance. We should expect rioting to take place. Why? Because God's ways are antithetical to our cultural ways. God's kingdom is completely upside down compared to our kingdom that we are trying to build here on earth. And so as we dive into chapter 19, that's what we're gonna look at first, is what caused this riot in Ephesus? We read in verse 24, it says, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, man, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that God, gods made with hands are not gods. There's the key thing of Paul's teaching that Demetrius is challenging and has an issue with. Verse 27 and there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing 
and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. So this temple of Artemis was a, a pilgrimage place where people would pour in from all over Asia Minor to pay respect, to praise, to worship, to give homage to the temple of Artemis. Verse 28 continues, when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Articus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. Even some of the Assyriacs or the governing officials who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion and most of them did not know why they had come together. Does that sound familiar in some of the stuff we see today? Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and when they had recognized, oh, Alexander motioned his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. Verse 34. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one great voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So who is this Greek goddess Artemis that people all around the world were coming to travel? Well, she was created in the seventh century BC as the god of the hunt, the wilderness, and the moon. Now some of you are like, well, that picture doesn't look like that at all. By the first century, uh, by the first century, this Greek Greco-Roman goddess had been morphed into a multiple-breasted goddess to represent fertility and sexuality. People would come, young men and women would pour in from all over Asia Minor to find a mate, to do what? You can fill in the blank. Does this sound any different from our culture 2,000 years ago in regards to human sexuality and gender? Have they morphed over the past 50 years? Okay, you can make her go away. There's a part of human nature when we look at cultures that we tend to swing on this pendulum of morality to immorality. Morality to immorality. And these have morphed. And so I, I share the story and we're, we're covering this. And the reason being is because the story that comes before Demetrius and causing a riot in Ephesus is where a great revival happened in Ephesus. But I want to point out here of some characteristics of what a riot or what some resistance should look like when true gospel proclamation is taking place so we aren't shocked when we're sharing the good news of Jesus, you're like, oh man, why don't they like this message? Because there's some underlying characteristics that, that bring resistance against gospel proclamation. And the first thing is always that there's a mob mentality. When the gospel pushes against the cultural idols, guess what the people that cling to them are going to do? They're going to gather their other homies and they're like, hey, you're not pushing against our idol. Look at us. We've got 500 people. We're deep. Keep coming at us with your gospel. Because why? Well, the second point is their money trail reveals their agenda and what they worship. 
What was Demetrius' big issue? Do you think it really had to do with the goddess Artemis? No. Demetrius, it started hitting him in his pocketbook where his wealth came from. And guess what? This gospel message was decreasing his business. There were less people traveling to Ephesus to pay and worship and praise this goddess. And so what do they do? They resort, resort to violence and cause confusion. In the story, Demetrius, they drag in two of Paul's companions into the theater. Do you think that was to see them perform and act? And no, it was because they wanted to hurl insults at them and probably get to the point where this mob would get all riled up and start beating people up. Did we see that taking place in our culture over the past few years? I think so. Because what do they ultimately want to do? They want to silence Christians and cancel opposing views. And how did they do that? By talking and yelling louder, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. How often do we get pulled into that? If we're on social media and someone posts something, it gets all this stuff stirred up inside of us and you know, we become like keyboard warriors and we're like, I'm gonna prove them right. And you get at the end of it of whatever you post and you go, what did I just get sucked into? I got sucked into the mob mentality and it caused confusion. There's only one author of confusion in our creation. And it entered into humanity in Genesis 3 in the garden. Do you know what his name is? Satan and his demons. I mean, it says in this passage that most of the people had no idea why they were in this theater yelling and screaming and yelling, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And ultimately what we see at the foundation of a lot of these riots or resistance is the idolization of sexuality and they force it upon the culture as they were doing with the goddess Artemis. Friends, Ecclesiastes 1.9 reminds us that there is nothing new under the sun. We might be more advanced technologically, but guess what? We are still rooted at the core, broken, sinful people doing sinful things in the need of God's grace through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I walk through that and share that because those were the characteristics of the resistance that was happening in Ephesus to the gospel proclamation. And the story besides that is we're gonna spend the rest of our time to look at what is it that caused this revival within Ephesus. So let's look into that, starting in verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Question, was this by the power of Paul, or by the power of the Holy Spirit this was happening? Be reminded of that. It's by the work of the Holy Spirit. So often we think, oh, I'm not the pastor, I'm not one of the original apostles, I don't have the special power. If you are a follower of Jesus, guess what? You have the Holy Spirit and his power within us and there may even be through your ministry people healed of diseases. So verse 13, it continues. Because of that was being seen in Ephesus, it says, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcist, that's kind of a cool pastor job right there, 
It's very narrowed and specific. Undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you or I command you by the Jesus who Paul, whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? I mean, that's kind of a, that'd be a hard spot to be in thinking you're doing ministry work and all of a sudden the demon speaks out and questions, who are you and your authority? Well, it shows that these men were not doing this in the authority or under, under the authority and power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 16, and the man in whom the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them. This man beat them up so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. I mean, just try to picture this. All of us might have a crazy neighbor somewhere on our street and you see seven pastors show up to Joe's house and 20 minutes later come running out naked and bloody. I mean, they'd be like, whoa, what's going on in over there? You know, or, you know, the, these pastors, they get home and they open the door and like, honey, I'm, whoa. What happened? Oh, it's a rough day at, uh, in the office, you know? Can I just get dressed? I mean, this is the scene, very vivid. And guess what? The passage continues and says, this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Gentiles, Jews and Greeks. This story traveled. What was the response of it? It says, fear fell upon them all and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So just like in the story with Demetrius, we saw characteristics of the resistance and the riot being formed. I want to unpack out of this passage, this story, what were the characteristics that led to a spiritual revival in Ephesus? Well, the first one was that they had a holy fear of God. They had a holy fear of God. Verse 17 tells us, and fear fell upon them all. You see, they had a healthy fear of God when they recognized that the demonic forces are subject to Jesus and those who have the Holy Spirit. It created fear in them to the point of them wanting to be obedient to God. How many of you can remember in, in your childhood that there might have been a day or maybe lots of days in your childhood that you were just a misbehaving child or, you know, to put it bluntly, you're just being a jerk to mom and dad or grandma, grandpa, aunt, uncle, whoever raised you. And that person got at their wits ends and got to the point and said, I can't wait until your fill in the blank gets home. For me, it was my dad. My mom had enough with me. I can't wait until your father gets home. What would that do? That put a little fear in me of, oh man, I'm being a jerk, I'm not being obedient to my mom, and she just pulled the card out on me that when my dad gets home, guess what, I know I'm gonna be held accountable. And it would put a little bit of fear within me. Now this is what's happening in Ephesus, not from parents and grands, aunts, uncles and whatnot, but the fear of the Lord is entering into people's hearts and soul. 
You see, the fear of God should give us a reverence and respect for the Lord who at any time could have given us what we deserved. But because of his mercy, God the Father spared us from what we deserved through the life, death, and resurrection of his only son, Jesus. Psalm 111.10 tells us, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You wanna gain wisdom? Fear the Lord. Psalm 86.11, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Proverbs 14.27, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. Most of us, when we hear, hey, we should have a fear of God, don't think, oh, hey, that's where a fountain of life is gonna come from. That one may turn away from the snares of death. Luke 1.50, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Jesus in Matthew 28 says this, do not fear those who can kill the body and cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Rather, fear God the Father who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So the Ephesians, they had a holy fear of God. They were next told that they had reverence for the name of Jesus, the end of verse 17, and the name of Lord Jesus, of the Lord Jesus, was extolled. The ESV version of the Bible uses extolled, which means to praise enthusiastically. The NIV says the name of the Lord was held in high honor. It was lifted up. For those who grew up with the King James Version, it says the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. Now, did they just have reverence for Jesus' name because of his sacrifice on the cross? I think not. Because when Jesus' disciples asked him, hey, Jesus, will you teach us to pray? And in Matthew, we read, you might be reminded of, how does the Lord's prayer begin? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. Hallowed means to consecrate, to make holy and pure. So the very first thing in the Lord's prayer is to have reverence for the name of God. Which God the Father came to a, it threw a burning bush to Moses in Exodus. And he introduces himself to Moses and he gives him his name. What was his name? His name was Yahweh, which means what? I am. I am who I am. And in this moment, God declares himself as a self-existent one who is self-sufficient and sovereign in all his ways. He needs absolutely nothing and he needs no one. But he came to Moses and said, I am Yahweh. All throughout scripture, there's over 300 names and descriptors of God and his character. And we are called through all throughout scripture to keep the Lord's name in high honor. Psalm 8.1, we're reminded, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Psalm 66.2, seeing the glory of his name, make his praise glorious. 
Psalm 68, 4, sing to God, sing praises to his name. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul reminds us why we should have reverence for the name of Jesus. And he says this beginning in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, the name above all names. So revival began in Ephesus with the holy fear of God, then they had reverence of Jesus' name. What did they do next? They confessed their sins. Verse 18, also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. You see, a true revival leads to confession of sins. Confession to God and to one another, vertical and horizontal. 1 John 1.9 reminds us if we confess our sins, he, Jesus, is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. You see, some of you who've been a part of other religions that place a priest or a bishop between you and God and your confession need to hear this. You do not need to go to another human to be forgiven of your sins. There is no human saint or bishop that can rid you or cleanse you of your sin. That is God's job and God's job alone in and through Jesus Christ. And that is a massive blessing. First Jim, first Jim. <laughs> I, don't, I haven't found that book in the Bible, so if you've found it, let me know. First Timothy 2.5 reminds us, for there is one God and there's one mediator between God and men the man Christ Jesus. And so you can take, we can take our sin directly to the Father through Jesus Christ, who's our great high priest. And that is his job alone. Now, does this mean that we don't confess our sin to one another? No. We're reminded in the book of James, who's Jesus' brother, presses into this and reminds us in James chapter 5, verse 16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. So why are we encouraged to do this? For the pure fact of accountability. You see, if we confess to the Father and we're forgiven because of Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection, what is the purpose that we share and confess with our brothers and sisters in Christ? It's for accountability. It's us finding two or three people that we deeply trust, that are devoted Christians, that are willing to journey with us through our sin and our struggles, which, hey, by the way, we're all sinners. Who's a sinner in here? Every hand should be up. So if you're new to this Christian thing, guess what? You're you're, you're surrounded by sinners. Because we have to be reminded in our earthly life, we are going to continually be bombarded with opportunities to do things that are not of the way of God. It's not until we 
shed this body and are in our glorious state in God's kingdom or when Jesus returns, that there will be no more sin. And so as we're journeying through life as followers of Jesus here on earth, we're called to confess to one another for accountability. And so ask yourself, do I have trusted friends that I can that can come alongside me, that I can open up and I can share the struggles that are going on in my life and somebody who's gonna point me to scripture and love me and encourage me because that's what was modeled in the early church. Verse 18 tells us that they came divulging their practices, sharing the sin that is in their life and seeking prayer. So they have a holy fear of God, they had reverence for the name of Jesus and they confessed their sins. Next, they purged ungodly influences from their life. Verse 19 told us, and a number of those who had practiced magical arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. You see, these books were having to do with sorcery and witchcraft, which allows demonic forces into your mind, heart, and soul. And what did they do? The people, the followers in Ephesus realized, hey, these are not of God, these are demonic and I need to get rid of them. Rather than going and dropping them off at Goodwill for some other witchcraft people to utilize, what do they do? They burn them. They're saying, we're getting rid of these out of our city. And it was of a value of 50,000 silver coins. A silver coin, one silver coin was a day's wage for the common person. So if we put that into perspective, of today, let's just take the national average of $60,000 of a salary per year. That is $12 million worth of material goods being destroyed for the sake of getting demonic things out of their life and their city. Of high value, they were letting go of an idol in their life to follow the one true God. This was a self-imposed book burning because people who got right with God realized there was stuff in their homes and their hearts that were ungodly and they needed to get rid of them because it was a detriment to their relationship with Jesus. Some of you might be new to the Christian faith and you're like, cool, Dustin, sin. So it sounds like this sin thing is things that are not of God. What are those things? Well, we can look up the Ten Commandments, very quick synopsis. We can read the Sermon on the Mount and the Gospel accounts. Or throughout the rest of scripture, there's people like Paul, when he wrote his letters to the churches, he was answering this question for them because again, they were Gentiles. They didn't have a religious upbringing. So Paul is trying to help them, hey, you're in Christ. Here's the things that are of God, not of God. And in Galatians 5, Paul gives a a lengthy list of things that are not of God. And here's the list. Galatians 5, verse 19 Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the things like these. You always got to add an et cetera. We're adults. We can piece things together, right? But here's how he concludes this list of vices. He says, I warn you, as I warned you before. So probably when he was preaching and teaching in, in Galatia, he says that, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Some of you might be sitting there like, Dustin, man, I got like nine of those 18 things. Does that mean I'm not inheriting the kingdom of God? <laughs> 
well, I mean, if you continue in that way and you reject God and you, know, you, you don't live a life devoted to seeking obedience in God, I don't know, that's God. He's the only one true judge, not me, not a pastor. No other pastor can tell you that. But what Paul is listing out these vices are for is for us to recognize, man, these ways are not of God. How can I be living in sexual morality? How could I be causing divisions? How could I have envy for all the idols of our culture of fame, beauty, power, status, and whatnot? How can I grab a hold of these things and be like, hey, I love you, God. There's a tension that's there, right? And so we need to take inventory of our life. What do we listen to? Who do we watch? What are we entertained by online or social media? What do we allow in our hearts? And if it's not of God, we need to get rid of it. We need to purge it. See, when I became a, a Christian 20 years ago, I brought into my new Christian faith, I, again, I wasn't raised in a religious household. I had a decades-long addiction to pornography. And in high school, I used the, the, the Ouija board, the, you know, which is witchcraft. I mean, it got to the point, guys, where... I took the Ouija board to a cemetery. I was like, if there's a bunch of spiritual forces, guess where I'm gonna find them? At a cemetery. Now, don't judge me, I wasn't a Christian. I didn't know any better, right? And so as I became a Christian, it was through preaching of God's word, being a part of a men's group, of coming under the recognition of, hey, these things are called sin and they shouldn't be in your life. You need to rid them. I'm like, okay, cool. What is that? Well, it's called repentance and seeking out forgiveness uh, and loving men that came alongside me in my men's group that journeyed with me. They prayed for me. They encouraged me. They were able to hold me accountable. They were able to give me resources of, hey, if you have a pornography addiction, here's a great book that's going to challenge you square in the forehead and in your heart of being a man of God. So when we have these things in our life, we need to take the steps of confession and accountability with our brothers and sisters in Christ. So finally, why did they purge these things out of their life? Well, they gave priority to the word of God. Verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. See, there's so many blessings and benefits when we read the word of God and live it out. When we obey the truth of God's word, the Lord blesses us. And this is not in some kind of prosperity gospel thing of you give to God and he, you, know, you just pull the lever and you're like, ching, ching, ching. Like, look, I'm being blessed. It goes deeper than that. When we get into God's word, we're blessed because we're reminded of the hope that we have through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. How many of you got a lot of messy stuff going on in your life? And sit there and question like, man, Lord, this doesn't feel like you're blessing me. And God's like, yes, I am. I've got you in this mess because I want to show you how much I love you. I got you intertwined in this person's messy life because I want you to be their pastor in their life. You see, at the foundation of your belief, you have to ask yourself if the Bible is your source for truth. Is the Bible the place you go to to grow in your understanding? You see, you could jump on YouTube online and you can watch amazing preaching and Bible teaching that's better than me, Ryan, or anybody else in the Sacramento reason. You can get so much information and be fed through all these great preachers, pastors, biblical teachers online. 
But if you personally don't look at the Bible and see this as the foundation of your truth, you're missing the point. Our job as pastors isn't just to open this and to share with you. Our job is to equip the saints for the work of ministry to spur you on and inspire you of I need to be in God's word, eating it and digesting it for myself. When you hear 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, do you believe it? It says, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Or is this just some ancient historical writings that are sitting on your shelf? Isaiah 55, 11, I love this passage. It is so hope-filled. This is the Lord speaking. It says, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God is not saying, maybe when my word goes out, it will accomplish what I sent it out for. God says, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth that shall not return to me empty. So if you're in here trying to discover who this guy Jesus is and he took your dead, stony, cold, spiritual heart and he started squeezing it and reviving it and you're like, I don't know what's going on but my eyes, ears, heart, mind and soul are opening up to this man Jesus. That is God's word going out and reviving your soul to be welcomed in as one of his sons and daughters. Don't reject that. Allow the spirit to work in your life. It's okay, the roof is still on the church. Let's keep preaching the word. Psalm 119, 105. We're told your word is a lamp to my feet and a light on my path. If you're not in God's word and you're on this path of life and God's word isn't lighting your path, what's wrong with your path? It's dark. You can't see. This passage tells us if God's word is not lighting our path, guess what? We're wandering through life on a dark path, going through a dark forest, just feeling and groping our way through life, trying to figure out what is the purpose of my life? Well, God's word shares with us the purpose of our life. It lights up our path, and that path is directed to God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jeremiah 15, 16, your words were found, and I ate them, and your words became to me a joy and a delight of my heart. And so often with new Christians, they get what? They get a fire. They're on fire for Jesus. And they're like, I love Jesus. I'm going to share him with everybody. I'm going to... I'm going to wake up and I'm going to read his scripture and I'm going to devour it. I'm going to eat it. I love it. I want more of it. I want it to be my sustenance. And those of us that have been walking with Jesus for a long time, we fall into that trap or that idol that Blake pointed out last week. What was that idol that he took sandpaper to our heart and soul on? Anybody remember? We had comfortable. Like, I've read through the Bible. Read through it once. I mean, I show up to church and... You know, you guys do a decent job preaching God's word and it, you know, fills me up, whatnot. What does Jeremiah tell us? Have a desire that you want to eat it. 
that you want to devour it. You want God's word to be in the depths of your soul. In Matthew 4, when Jesus is tempted by Satan to eat food after 40 days of fasting, Jesus responds to Satan by quoting Deuteronomy 8.3 that says, man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Again, he says in Luke 11.28, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Back to the book of James, Jesus' brother, he presses into this a little more, starting in verse 22, he says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, raise your hand if that's you, no, I'm kidding. But if that is you, James said it, not me. He is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So when we read the word of God and when we actually do it, there's that blessing that we're reminded of. So when we abide in God's word, it goes well for us. And, you know, again, some of you might be in here like, okay, I'm new to this, Dustin. Where do I start? I've never cracked the Bible, never opened it. Start with the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Because of this one important thing, you need to be introduced to Jesus and who he is and what he means to you in your life and your everything that you do. You need to be introduced to Jesus. So in conclusion, I would love to see our city have a gospel revival. I would love to see the state of California experience a gospel revival. I would especially love to see a gospel revival within our great governor's heart. But here's the thing. We live in a microwave culture that wants to see results now, see results today. How long was Paul in Ephesus? For two years. So church, let's not get hung up looking for some grandiose, large-scale revival that we got sucked into. Like, look what's going on at Ashbury College. Is this a true revival? Does it have characteristics of a grandiose revival? But let's be faithful to the people that Jesus has placed around us to be their pastor, to be the one willing to point out the idols of our culture, the false gods of our city, to speak with grace and truth. Because every time a spiritually dead person proclaims Jesus as their Lord and confesses their sin, a revival has taken place in their heart and there's a massive party in heaven that's taking place. Like, where does it say that in the Bible, Dustin? Luke 15, read the prodigal son story. What does Jesus tell us when the prodigal comes home? The father runs out and embraces him and he's like, My wretched, sinful son, you're back. It doesn't say it in that manner, but he says, kill the fattened calf, put a robe around him, put my ring on his finger, and there's a massive party that takes place. While his religious brother is like, I don't know if that's a true conversion. You know, you never gave me even a goat, dad. Friends, I point this out to help us understand that when we are sharing the gospel and participating in gospel proclamation, guess what? It means we need to interact with messy people. 
the Gentiles of our culture. And guess what, friends? I'm one, you're one, we're all one. We're messy. So let's be messy people that looks around who God placed us around and say, how can I be the presence of Jesus to this person? How can I be their pastor? How can I point out the things that in their life in a loving way and help them see the life and hope that we have through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? But before we do that, we need to check our own household first. We need to do a heart check. We need to ask ourselves, do I have a holy fear of God? Do I have reverence for the name of Jesus? Do I regularly confess my sin vertical and horizontal? What sins in my life do I need to purge? And do I give a priority to the word of God? Can we do that, church? Let's pray. Father God, I do pray for a revival to take place. I pray for a revival to take place in people's hearts and their minds and their lives and everything that they do. Holy Spirit, you would lead them, guide them, instruct them, and point them to your truth. Father, I cannot wait to celebrate with people who have professed faith in Jesus and are being baptized in a couple weeks to hear exact stories of how you revive their dead hearts to be all about you. Father, I pray as we go out into this city and live our normal lives that we'd be a faithful presence of Jesus and that we would do our part in seeking a revival for this city, for this state, for our nation, for your entire world, that we would continue to fulfill Acts chapter 1 verse 8 of being your witnesses to the ends of the earth, Father, that we would do our part. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.